goal is to get through Romans 1 and into 2. So last week, just as a a means of review for the things that we've looked at, think about the fact that we identified the fact that the gospel produces an obedience of faith, and that leads ultimately to salvation. The second thing that we looked at specifically last week was that as we considered the fact that if the gospel produces faith unto salvation— we made the observation that, well, we got to be saved from something, right? And we identified the fact that what Paul is now doing is making a case that all men have sinned and they're in need of salvation. So what was the first thing he started with? But trying to prove, not trying, but he proved that God exists Because if God doesn't exist, then none of it matters. It's the foundational principle on which our faith uh, resides. And then we notice certain things about the Gentiles, because he's looking at Gentiles first, and then as we move into today's lesson, later in today's lesson, he's going to address the Jews. And so we identify the fact that the existence of God is proven through creation, Creation communicates and and declares the glory of God. But the Gentiles had failed to honor him. And we talked about honoring and the importance of really instilling in our children from the very beginning the importance of honoring God, of touching the heart. You can teach all the facts, the figures of the Bible, but if you don't touch the heart, if you don't get to the heart and instill that honor of God— it's not going to produce the faith that we need. And then we also observe the fact that the Gentiles lacked thankfulness. They were not thankful to God. Uh, and so if you're not thankful, you don't have that reliance, that, that realization that you are to rely on God and that nothing that you have is of your own. And then we moved into this idea of human wisdom, that they had elevated their wisdom above that of God. And if you recall, we had talked about the fact that in this logical, uh, I guess, uh, I won't say dissertation, but just this logical path that Paul is on, he's, he's like a lawyer, making it, presenting various exhibits to prove his case. And when we got to Exhibit B, we talked about this idea that in their wisdom, they had exchanged certain things for something else. We had looked at, they had exchanged the glory of God, and they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So what I want to do now is continue in this concept of what the Gentiles had exchanged that God had given for something else, okay? And it's like exchanging the Maserati for the Ford Fiesta, okay? I hope nobody has a Ford Fiesta in here. (laughs) But you get my point. Okay, so the last one is they exchange God's order. What do you think I mean by that in relation to the context of Romans 1? 
natural for the unnatural. Uh, and so he goes here and, and identifies and describes a world uh, where this unnatural affection of one for another, where women are with women, men are with, women, uh, with men, is uh, debased and unnatural. And, and, and when you look at our society today, have we not done the exact same thing? Because when you leave God out of the equation, when you exchange God's glory and you exchange God's uh, truth for a lie, what are you left with? You have no standard. And so anything goes. And that's what we're seeing in, in our society today. And in fact, when you think about Genesis, the second chapter, what did God do with regard to the man? Who did he bring to the man? Let me rephrase my question. Help meet in the form of what? A woman. And in fact, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about the sanctity of marriage in Matthew 19, what does he do? Goes back to the beginning. Have you not read that he who made them made them male and female? And so what we see in the world today is because we have no standard to live by or the world has no standard because they've thrown God out of the equation. And so that's why I, 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 I worded it God's order because that is what we've seen. That's what they've done is they have taken God out of the equation. And so I want to now think about it in a different light. And that is when you think about what we are, have personally seen just in my lifetime and, and in your lifetime and what we see in the world around us, isn't there a natural progression for society? Because you start with exchanging God, you take God out of the equation and his glory, his compassion, his loving kindness, his justice. Think about Exodus 34, which we looked at last week. When you take that out, and then you take, then you're, you're, you, you go to this, this idea of God's truth, this, and then you, you put something else in its place, man's wisdom, and does man's wisdom come close to this? Okay? Then you, you let anything go because the standard is gone. And so, as we look at and consider the things going on in our society, how we live, how we worship, what's the standard? Is it here? It's not human reasoning, is it? It's this. Because this is the standard. So... I want to go on and then make a, a final point, and that is going back to my question, question five from last week's lesson, and that is, why did God give the Gentiles over to a depraved mind? Very 
Second Thessalonians chapter two verses ten and eleven uh, mm-hmm. it tells us that if if we don't have a love for the truth, that that God will allow people to believe the lie. Yeah, and, and now I I, I want to make sure we we're clear on on this concept of God giving them over. Is that just saying? These people are without excuse because, well, God gave it to them. That's not really what he's saying. He's basically saying these people are intent on doing what they want to do. And so, okay, that's fine. Here, go for it. But that doesn't excuse them from the penalty of what they're doing because they are so set on doing what they want to do. Sam. That's right, Carrie. From the very beginning, I mean, and we don't even hear about all the prophets, but occasionally through the Old Testament, you hear about prophets that would go to countries of people that were other than God's people and warn mm-hmm. them. And sometimes you get good response, like when Jonah <clears throat> went to Nineveh. Mm-hmm. But other times uh, you, you evidently wouldn't because these nations would get more and more depraved and so you see where God tried various times, but when people headed the direction they wanted to go, I mean, God wasn't going to send down fire and brimstone every time yeah. and kill them right. whenever they strayed away. Yeah. Free will, they did what they want. God still was able to use them, use evil nations to, to uh, punish his people, uh, use the Israelites to punish them, and so on. It was in God's order, but, but you're right. exactly right. It doesn't mean he was well-pleased with any of that. It's just the way it was with free will. Yeah, and you touched on one point that we'll bring up when we get in chapter 2, and that is the patience, long-suffering of God. But then the other thing that you, you mentioned about the prophets, Hosea 4.6. When you think about Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being my priests, since you have forgotten the law of your God. You see, the, the point here is that they had rejected, the people had rejected God. Therefore, God was rejecting them. Okay, same idea in that they were so intent on doing what they want to do, the Gentiles, he handed them over to their desires. He'd, uh, and so because they had rejected him. Okay, so now... Um, So notice then that God gave them up to several things. It says that first, in verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Well, if your God is no longer God, the creator, but something that's from the wisdom of man, what's the result? You're going to choose and you're going to live after your your own heart, your own desires. And so you're going to seek those things are, that are impure. And then when you think about exchanging God's truth for a lie, what's that going to do? You're going to turn and go to those degrading passions that Paul wrote about, writes about in verses 26 and following. And then in verse 28... And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. This, this idea of, see, uh, of seeing fit 
it really is this concept of testing or examining, of reasoning through as something as genuine. So you get the point? They weren't even testing what they knew to make sure it was of God. And so when you, when you throw that out, when you're no longer testing and examining and proving something to be valid, you're following, again, after your depraved mind. Because as I go back to, again, there is no standard. Now, one thing I want to just wrap up on uh, in this section in, uh, in Romans 1, and that is he lists all of these sins that the Gentiles participated in because they have a depraved mind. There is no standard. Each is doing their own, just as we observed uh, from the book of Judges last week. But did you notice something in verse 32 about who else he condemns? Those who approve it. They may not be actively participating in the, in the activity that's listed. But they're not condemning it either. They're approving. And so that's a lesson for us in our world today. That we need to be careful we're not um, unconsciously approving something that's wrong as right, uh, as okay. Okay? So just something to think about. And just one other idea that I can't help but notice, uh, given our culture today, and that is this word in in verse 31 that is unloving. And that term is actually means without natural affection, love of kindred. I don't think I need to say anything more. Okay, so... Let's go then and move into chapter 2. Now, think about the fact that, you know, Paul is writing this letter to Rome. This church we've already seen is comprised of Gentiles and Jews. We've shown that from the scripture. And he's addressed the Jews. I mean, excuse me, the Gentiles. What do you think may be going in the, in the mind of the Jew as, as they're reading or someone is reading this section on the Gentiles? Yeah, yes, and, and, I, and I don't want to come across as saying it's the, it, the, the Jewish brethren in Rome are now looking poorly toward the Gentile brethren. That's not it. But there's a sense of nationalistic pride and, you know, Jewish heritage that almost seems like he's addressing. So he's addressing the Gentiles, and then he immediately turns to the Jews. He doesn't even give them a chance to breathe and says, therefore, you are without excuse. And the you, if you go to verse 17 of chapter uh, 2, you know who the you is. The you is the Jew. So now he's trying to show that it's not just the Gentiles who are sinners and in need of the gospel. It's you, Jew, too, who's in need of the gospel. And so now he's going to bring out a case, if you will, to show that the, Gen- the Jew is just as guilty as the Gentiles 
and are in need of the gospel. Okay, so with that said, this is, again, if you get nothing else out of my babbling, I want you to walk away with the fact that Paul is showing here, proving that the Jews are just like the Gentiles. They are in need of salvation. They are spiritually depraved. They are stubborn. They are unrepentant. And they are in need of the gospel. And so that's really the focus of chapter 2. And so now let's go and look at the exhibits, if you will, that Paul lays out to show that the Jews are guilty and sinners and in need of the gospel. And so my question then is, why were the Jews without excuse? Why couldn't they have that swell head to say, hey, we're Jews. We're children of God. They were doing the exact same thing as the Gentiles. And so notice, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you, have, for you who judge practice the same thing. And so what I'd like to do is go and um, turn to... Psalm 106.20. If I can get there. In 106.20, again, this is a psalm acknowledging the sins of the Jews. So we could spend here a lot of time here. But I just felt like, uh, and I'm going to even start with verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. What's that a reference back to? The golden calf, yeah. What had they done? They had taken God and the glory of God for the image of man, the image of creatures, of four-footed beasts. They had done the exact same thing. And the, the Jews had a history of idolatry, of continuing to fall into idolatry. It wasn't really until after the, the captivity that they sort of got their act together, but they had other problems even after that, okay? So uh, just found that interesting. And, and, and then Matthew 15, and you're thinking, where is he going with Matthew 15? So Matthew 15, what does Jesus condemn the, the Jews for, the Pharisees and scribes of doing? Notice, verse 3, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God, 
He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Your hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. What had the Jews done with regard to God's truth? They had exchanged God's truth for what? A lie. For man's tradition. They were doing the exact same thing the Gentiles did. And so then that got me to thinking. Because I just don't want this to be, well, this is what the Jews did, and this is what the Gentiles did thousands of years ago. Because who are the Jews? God's chosen, God's people. And they had exchanged God's law for their own wisdom, for a lie. They had changed the glory of God for something else. So my question is, what about us? There are people that um, claim to be Church of Christ or Christian, and um, you go into their assembly, and it's just like everybody else in the world. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's got the same values, the same everything that everybody else got, but they want to say that they're, they're the scriptural um, Christians and stuff like that, but there is no no. Yeah, but I want to bring it home. I think we need to be careful. We're not taking a tradition and elevating it to the concept of doctrine. There are certain things we may do from a tradition perspective that are really expediencies. Okay, the elders have, you know, put certain things in place to make it expedience to achieve certain goals. But we should not elevate that expediency to doctrine as a part of third opinions, chapter 1, verse 5. Do you get my point? We need to be careful there. And then, you know, the other thing I thought about was... The Jews, they had get, been given God's prophecies laid out for the, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. When the Christ came, what happened? They didn't accept him, but why? They didn't recognize him. Why? It's not what they wanted. They were blinded by their own perception of what the truth was saying. And again, bring it home, we need to be careful that we don't remain blinded by our perception instead of objectively looking at the truth and then living by it. Make sense? So again, I don't want us to be pointing fingers at the Gentiles and the Jews and not having the finger pointed back at us individually, collectively, to say, let's make sure we're not falling in the same pattern that the Gentiles and the Jews did, that that Paul is describing in the book of Romans. And so, um, you know... The, the, these ideas, and, and going back to Romans, let me get back there so I can get my thoughts back together. 
So when you're looking at Romans, the second chapter, notice he says, and we know that judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. How would they have known that? Ken, these are Jews. What should they have known? They should have known the law of Moses. You look at Leviticus chapter 20, for example, listing all kinds of sins and, and the penalty for that sin. They should have known that, hey, if we participate in this, this is the judgment. This is the penalty that, that I'm going to extend to the, to the guilty. They should have known that. And so what rhetorical, and this goes into verse 20, uh, chapter, question two, what rhetorical question does Paul ask of his fellow Jew? Yes, right. Yeah. So in verse three, or do you suppose, O man, then when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of, of God? And that's really this idea of this confidence in the relationship. The Jews had such a strong confidence in their relationship with God. We are of the circumcised, and he's going to address that coming up at the end of chapter two, the second half of chapter two. That we're fine. We're good. We're not in any trouble. So I'm going to ask the question. Just because we may have been immersed in that watery grave, do we sometimes develop that attitude? And hear what I'm saying. You know, through that watery grave of baptism, we come in contact with the blood of Christ. But what else do we realize about that? You can fall away and go to First uh, Thessalonians. Well, sorry. It's, did I write down the wrong passage? Okay. Oh, no, no, no. It's not Thessalonians. It's Colossians. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Colossians 1, verses 22 and 23. And so Paul says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There's another part to that thought in verse 22. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you had heard. So we don't need to, you know, think like the Jews did that we are all fine and dandy because we've been baptized. Sam. They should have even learned from their own history because some of them, you know, back in mm-hmm. Jeremiah, they were saying, oh, we're good. We've got yeah. Jerusalem. We've got the temple. Uh, surely nothing bad's going to happen. And God told them, oh, just wait for it. It's coming. Right. Yeah. Good, good point. And so... Moving on then, we talk about his, uh, this position, this relationship. But then notice on 
in verses 4 and 5? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So moving into question 3, what should the Jews have understood about God's patience, kindness, and forbearance? It was an opportunity. It was a part of his, his uh, glory, to, uh, his patience and long-suffering. Think about Exodus 34, his long-suffering, his patience for his people to return, to, to, to come back to him. Turn to Ezekiel 33. And you thought this was just a lesson on Romans. But if you go to Ezekiel 33... Notice in verse 11, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So God doesn't want men to be lost. And then... Notice going into verse 30. I'm going to skip a lot of, obviously, Ezekiel 33 for the sake of time. But go to verse 30. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is, in, uh, is which comes forth from the, lo- the, the Lord. And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. What's he telling them? What's he saying? What's happening? The people are saying, oh, let's go here. Let's sit in the pew. Okay, bringing it back home. We're going to sit in this pew, check. But then what do they do when they exit the door? Whatever they want. And so that, that's this, the concept of, of what the, the Jews, this, this description of the Jews, that they're unrepentant, they're stubborn people. And so in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And so really going back to part two of my question, three, what should they have been doing? Instead of being stubborn, what should they have been doing? Yielding, Yielding, repenting, humbling themselves before God. And so then he then moves into this next argument. And he says, who will render to every man according to his deeds? So he says, you are storing up wrath and revelation, uh, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then he reminds the people, he reminds these Jews Do you not remember that God is going to judge people according to his works? And so let's flip on over to Psalm 62, because this is where this passage comes from. 
And so if you, for context for, Roman, uh, for Psalm 62, the psalm is, is basically describing his, his quest to really remain true, to be faithful. If I can get there. But in this, he knows that there are men who are evil. And he has that description in verses 3 and 4 and 9 and 10. And so, as I read it, what I'm getting is he's striving to be holy and faithful. He's recognizing those who are evil. There are men who are evil. <laughs> and, and so he's, he knows he's having to wait on God. I, I'm reminded of the passage in Revelation, and I, I should have written it down, um, but the souls under the altar, they're crying out, how long, O Lord, how long until judge, uh, justice, judgment is done against those who persecuted and killed us? That's almost the image that I get when reading Psalm 62. And then notice at the very end of Psalm 62 is this passage that is quoted here in, um, in Romans. And that is in verse 12. And loving kindness is thine, O Lord, for thou dost recompense a man according to his work. And so he's, he realizes, he understands that God's going to judge men for these for their, their deeds, and that he has to leave, he has to wait and leave the judgment of, uh, of man to God at God's appropriate time. And so then that got me to thinking, well, and you may be thinking about this in the pew, thinking, you know, Carrie, two weeks ago, you talked about verse 17, about really being focused on salvation through faith. And now you're telling me here in verse 6 that God is going to be judging and salvations on my works. That's a common thought, okay? So maybe you know where I'm going. So then the question is, okay, if God judges men based on deeds, then is it faith or is it works? Well, let me just say that Romans is just an incredible book that outlines and delves into this topic that we are saved on faith. Our salvation is faith-based. But does faith and works have to be mutually exclusive? No. And so Romans then talks through how the two work together because it's all there in Romans. But I don't want to give the bank away at this point in time, I need to keep dangling these cliffhangers so that y'all come back, okay? So we will delve more into that. But I I do want to give you a couple of points, a couple of passages to think about, and that is Hebrews 11.6, so you can write this down. Hebrews 11.6, and then James 2. Do what? Oh, Well, yes, you can go 17, but I'm going all the way down to the end of the passage of that chapter. Okay? So we'll work work through all of this, 
But it's not an either or, and that's where a lot of people get sideways. They think it's or, and it's not an or equation. Okay? So, with that said, then let's move on to the balance of uh, this chapter, or this section of the chapter. So, he then begins, when he, when he talks about this concept of man judge, or God judging men on their deeds, he then goes and talks about these two paths. And when you think about it, there are two paths in Psalm 62, right? There's the good path, what I might call the happy path, and then the sad path. Okay? So, he addresses... First, what I call the happy path. For those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Okay? We'll stop there for a minute. I want to talk a little bit about for those who do good, the happy path. What's the first Characteristic, if that's the, the word I'm looking for, that may not be the right word. Description, descriptive phrase to talk about those who do good. You're looking at me with blank stare, so I know you're not thinking what I'm thinking. Not seeking, by perseverance. To those who by perseverance in doing good. When you persevere, what does that sort of describe? What does that mean? What does that imply? Pressing on. Pressing on. Why? Why? Why do I have to press on? It's hard. Life is not a bowl of cherries. And for the Christian who's swimming upstream, it's even more difficult. Right? Look, we all have our own personal struggles, whether that be spiritual, physical, or both. Probably it's both. So, but it's descriptive of the life of a Christian, that we will endure hard times, difficult times, physically, spiritually. There will be days we, like, do I have to get up? Okay. But what do we know awaits us? Heaven. And isn't that part of what Paul writes about in his description in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter? Paul is undergoing some difficulty. We don't know what it is. It really is immaterial that we know what it is. But there was some thorn in his flesh where he was undergoing difficulty. But what was God's response? My grace, look at the end, the end goal. It will pale in comparison to the thorn that you are experiencing. And so one thing that I think we need to think about is this. We first realize that we're all in the same boat together. We're all undergoing difficulties, trials, hardships. They may not be the same. They may occur at different times. But the person sitting in the pew next to you is going through trials that you may not be aware of. 
And the person in the pew next to you may not realize that you're going through hard times. So what does that speak of the need for? Communication. If, in fact, that we are, as Romans 2 points out, if we're striving to do good, we're going to have to do it by perseverance. Okay? So there's going to be hard times. It's difficult. But, again, in doing good, we seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. That got me to thinking of two passages in Hebrews. One, Abraham, Hebrews 11. What did Abraham continue to do? Who, what did he look for? A heavenly home. Right. And Moses... Why did he endure the sufferings that he endured at the hands of his Egyptian? He was looking to the reward. And that's what we need to continue to look to. We need to look to the reward. God's grace is far sufficient for the trials and the things that we may endure. That's the point that I think here, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, but also here. He's keeping in mind the fact that those who do good, they seek glory, verse 10, they seek glory, honor, and peace to every man who does good. Okay, so then the bad path, the unhappy path. Notice then, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what is there? What's their end? Yes, wrath and indignation. Did I just hear Matt ring a bell? Okay, wrath and indignation. I couldn't help but think about Second Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians, and, and David uh, referenced that passage about love of the truth, but even before that, and this is where my mind went on this, notice in verse 6 beginning, he's giving comfort to the Thessalonian brethren that they are undergoing difficulty. There are people who are afflicting you, but realize that the people who are afflicting you, you're going to get relief But notice what's going to happen to them. When the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is reminding his Jewish brethren, people who should have known the end result of both paths that Notice in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And so he's laid out a case that the Jew should have known these things and they failed. And they are sinners just like the, um, just like the Gentiles. Okay, I, was that the second or the first bell that I heard? It was the first one, but you're about to ring the second one, right? Yes, I thought so. Okay, Um, we're going to stop here. We'll pick up in verse 11. I just have, it won't take long to get back on track, but then next week we'll go through chapter 3, verse 8. Okay, thank you.